0: This podcast is a member of WGPRN, wildgamesproductions.com. Folks, and welcome to the Darker Days Radio Podcast, episode number twenty. I'm your host Vince, along with my co-host Mark, and his surprise Barbie microphone. Mark, how are you doing tonight?
1: I'm doing fantastic. I'm bringing the pink. Don't you mock my Barbie microphone? That's very manly. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. You're gonna have to tell us the story behind that one.
1: <laughs> okay.
0: <laughs> well, folks, uh, we have a great bunch of shows for you this month. Uh, today we have uh, the sitting in the background, nice, quiet, and patient Richard Dansky of former White Wolf's past. Richard, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? So we're just doing super. And tonight we're going to talk to you a little bit about uh, some of the things you've written and some of the things you are writing, and what's coming out in the future for you as well, and it's in store for uh, all the fans out there. So we're going to just sit back, and uh, Mark, I'm going to hand it over to you now to tell us a story about the Barbie mic.
1: Oh, okay. Well, it's real simple. My head, my, my headset microphone broke. It just gives off a really annoying buzzing noise, and I had a darkling to record, uh, the one episode number nine from the other week, and I couldn't find a microphone, and the only microphone in the house belonged to my eight-year-old daughter from her Barbie sing-along set. Um, so uh, that's what I used, and as thing as it works so well, I'm using it ever since. So here you go. <laughs> interesting uh, one Darker of Days you... in pastel shades of pink and purple uh, with a flower on top it's very good wow. it's very World of Darkness it is. well for this month like we
0: said in the top of the show we're going to be bringing you a whole bunch of uh, interviews and uh, old things from
1: the past to celebrate our one year on the air mark, one year that's right, our anniversary, happy anniversary Vince, I can't believe it's been a year since we started this little outing here, what'd you get me? Uh, I got you a pink microphone
0: (laughs) thanks thanks a lot
1: once you used you know what i got for you mark what's that a mailbag oh okay well um yeah it's, uh, it's empty, I'm afraid. Um, Why? M- primarily, yes. Yeah, it's been very quiet uh, on the email, and so my refreshing thing thanks you all. Um, although we have had a couple of cool Darkling submissions, one on Vampire the Eternal Struggle, which we released a couple of weeks ago, and there's been another one from long-time listener Alakov on converting Old World of Darkness Chronicles right over to New World of Darkness Chronicles without breaking continuity. <laughs> so you can uh, look for that soon. It's pretty interesting. Oh, Cool. We- yeah, We did have a, a mail, actually, which I wanted to draw attention to. Uh, one listener who subscribes to our show through iTunes was asking how come some of the earlier shows don't appear on his iTunes subscription. Um, that's basically because uh, when the show hasn't been accessed very recently or frequently, iTunes archives it and it no longer gets offered through their subscription service and you have to go straight to our website to download it. So if you're an iTunes subscriber and you're having trouble finding our early episodes, just head on over to darkerdays.tk and uh, you can download them manually there. They haven't gone anywhere, um, they're just not being fed straight through.
0: Yeah, that happens a lot of times with iTunes and earlier episodes. A lot of Other podcasts, some of the, like, Libsyn and things like that, they cut them off even further upon that, and you would only have, like, the last five episodes of the show, so Mm -hmm. be lucky that we even have those.
1: Yeah. Um, There has been some cool activity at the uh, Facebook page, though, um, including a petition started by some nutter about my very cool and manly Barbie microphone, so uh, thanks for that, whoever you are. You're welcome. Um, (laughs) And you will will, post up those pictures. they will be photos, okay. yes. Okay, they will be photos. Fine, okay. fine. Okay. Um, and always, I want to give shout outs to the newest members of the forums. Uh, so, hello there to Cynical Prophet, Pope J Rod, uh, the Marquis von Vimanis, uh, Aramis13, Wolf the Manslayer, Mike Rand, Serial Killer, Jerko Brains for Breakfast, and Kugon. What about that other one? There's one I missed. Oh, uh, well, maybe not. Okay. You dare challenge me on my name lists, <laughs> Vincent. <How> do you? <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, <laughs> let's dive into uh, some news. WGPRN News in depth.
1: Yay, news. Ru- Yes, and um, we've had some uh, interesting releases recently from our uh, sister show, uh, Mirage Arcana. They've been cranking them out. They recently had a fantastic interview with James Jacobs uh, from Paizo, talking about the Kingmaker uh, Adventure Path and various other gaming-related things. So if you uh, want to check that out, head over to their podcast and listen to it. It's well worth it. Very cool. Yeah. Um, but the main news this month, Vince, is us. Us? Really? Yeah, one-year-old. Oh, um, oh so uh, that's that's worthy of a news item Um, we're going to be having a month full of special shows retrospectives interviews special features we're going to be looking back at the old world of darkness and those who helped create it and then bringing things full circle later in the month with a special show jam-packed with the best of the new uh, and well, today is the inaugural anniversary show, and we're joined, as Vince said earlier on, by Richard Dansky, um, whom, if you don't know, has written a, a really, really ridiculous amount of World of Darkness books. Um, Richard, I went to look at the, uh, the credits list on penandpaper.net, and there's over 100 of them there.
2: I think it's 134, but I sort of lost track. Um, <laughs> we moved into our new house. My wife said, okay, you can keep the role-playing books that you worked on, how about that shelf? No, I did all of those. How about that shelf? No, I, I did all of those. And uh, that took about a half an hour to go through. Oh, wow.
1: Outstanding. Well, I thought Matt McFarland had written a lot, but my God, you put him to shame. Mm. Really uh, a prodigious output. Very, very cool.
2: I didn't sleep a lot in those days, so uh, I had to do something with myself. Sleep is for the weak. Uh, it really is.
1: <laughs> go on, Mark. Okay, um, and further news coming from uh, Big Brother White Wolf uh, Cons- Compacts and Conspiracies is out and um, this is the PDF release for Hunter the Vigil Chuck and Eddie both talked about it in previous shows and uh, well it's, it's out it's been out for a couple of weeks it gives a more detailed look at each of the conspa- compacts and conspiracies covered in the original Hunter the Vigil game rulebook and contains bonus material and systems relevant to each organisation and also includes endowments for the game's compacts so that's worth uh, checking out you can pick that up at the usual spots at a uh,
0: Yeah, and uh, I just also found out that Eddie Webb's been two-timing us now, too. He has. He's just shameless, isn't he? Yeah, I know. He's been pimping himself out. No, I'm kidding. Eddie Eddie Webb's been putting himself out there and uh, talking a lot. He's been over with the Dark Providence Forums uh basically we figured out that is a like a play-by-post uh forums i think mark we took a look at that today and
1: yeah it looks quite interesting nice uh, uh, nice design on the site too so if you are really looking for, yeah
0: looking for games maybe some dark uh, play-by-play uh little darkness games uh, head over to their site uh dot bunch of uh good material there good bunch of games starting up so you should take a look at that cool right mark
1: that's it, yeah, yeah. And it's, uh, it was a moderated chat with Eddie, um, so oh, you got yes. several pages of, uh, of insight and uh, ideas on uh, World of Darkness and White Wolf Games in general. Um, so yeah, worth a look, worth checking out.
0: Let's head over to the uh, Secret Frequency now. He's under the
1: stairs. Oh, Steve. I love okay, folks, welcome to the Secret Frequency, where we examine true stories from the world and show you how you can take these, twist them around and use them in your World of Darkness games. Uh, today, we're looking at Angels and Demons and this was submitted by the Doyenne of the Secret Frequency, uh, Law, over at our forums. Thanks for this, Law. She sent us another cracker. <laughs> uh, story is about Annie Hooper. Annie Hooper was born in the early part of the 20th century. She had 12 biological brothers and sisters, and over the course of her childhood, 14 foster siblings. Annie married young, and the Hoopers settled at Cape Hatteras in the town of Buxton on the North Carolina coast. There, the pair had only one son, but years later, when World War II broke out, her husband and son both left home to participate in the war effort. Her son enlisted in the army. Her husband moved north to Newport News, Virginia, to work at the naval shipyard. Now, alone for the first time in her life, Annie had a difficult time coping with the solitude. Her loneliness was intensified by how isolated the North Carolina coast became during the war. Telephone communications, as well as mail deliveries, were intermittent at best, and German submarines began sinking ships within sight of the shore. The stress of war, the isolation, and the loneliness took its toll on Annie's soul, and she broke. She began blacking out Suffering huge holes in her memory and hearing voices that whispered to her of uncontrollable compulsions. Her husband, naturally worried but unable to return home, told her she could take on boarders to help with the loneliness. So, during the years of the war, Annie did so and it had a total of 35 boarders come through her house. And, as long as the house was filled with the real voices of actual people, the voices in Annie's head were quiet. After the war ended, the steady stream of boarders dried up and Annie was left alone again the voices quickly returned as did the blackouts and the huge lapses of time for which she could not account then one day without purpose or plan Annie spontaneously gathered driftwood and twigs from the beach and used them to make sculptures of two people about six inches high she then used these sculptures to recreate one of the scenes from her old illustrated family bible like God himself Annie's first creations were Adam and Eve Immediately, the malicious voices were silenced and the blackouts and memory lapses came to an abrupt halt. Over the course of the next 40 years, the malicious voices were kept at bay by the silent guardian sculptures Annie created. She fashioned from driftwood and twigs more than 3,000 of these small sculptures by the time of her death and filled every flat space on her house with them, every inch of the floor, the tables, the attic, the shelves, all of it. And his creations were grouped into scenes by a gold tinsel and Christmas lights. Many of the scenes were biblical, depicting battles between good and evil, angels and demons. And many of the scenes were of spiritual realities unrecognizable by any theologian. The scenes themselves were identified by styrofoam placards. Some of the placards were inscribed with the names of the characters present in the scene many of the names were of entirely unknown origins they were not biblical names and some of the placards held biblical quotes and summaries of spiritual teachings though more than a few of the verses did not have their origin in the bible or any other known religious text annie hooper's own private apocalypse became something of a local legend people came from far and wide to see the house Annie died in 1986, and when she did, the county collected all of her sculptures and handed them over to North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina, as priceless works of folk art. They are currently not on display. So what do we make of Annie Hooper? What did she do in those lost moments she can't remember? Were all of her extra-biblical scenes and verses original, or did she get them from another source? Was the poor woman merely suffering from a mental illness brought on by isolation, stress, and loneliness? Yes. Not in the world of darkness. (laughs) Uh, Had she actually tapped into a spiritual reality and was, without any knowledge of the occult, and solely by intuition, crafting totems to keep a malicious entity at bay? Or was she being directed by an unseen hand to amass an army that still awaits the day of its awakening? Angels or demons, you decide. So, yeah, like so many of these secret frequency submissions, this is the kind of thing that immediately screams out for incorporation in your game, with plot hooks and ideas dripping off it. Hmm. Uh, An obvious choice might be that she is channeling visions of the umbra of the spirit world. These various dioramas are recreations of places she has seen in deep spiritual trance locations beyond the gauntlet on the far side. And if you recall a few episodes back, we uh, did uh, um, some coverage of the Voynich Manuscript, which likewise contains maps and bestiaries and uh, apothecaries and various biological uh, (laughs) emblems and diagrams that seem to have no real-world analogues. You could tie these two things together. Maybe tales of the Voynich Manuscript and its contents lead to, uh, to Annie Hooper, that she is was someone channeling the same realities, but in a modern era, several hundred years later than Voynich's book? Um, like Law suggested, uh, she could have been contacted by spirit entities and has been preparing vessels for them to inhabit when they come over from the other side to ours. A good, good idea for a Demon the Fallen game. Exactly, yes. Yeah. If you have uh, creatures rising out of the, uh, the netherworlds, they may need something simple to inhabit in order to be able to explore our world. Uh, these small totemic forms could be representations of a, of a form they're later going to take when they breach the barriers between the worlds more fully. This could also give you a nice conspiracy-related reason as to why they've been taken into custody and not exhibited. Uh, The county may have gotten hold of them, and yet those in the know in the the shadow world could have come forward and said, well, uh, we'll look after these uh, for you in our uh, Hmm. Titania vault several miles below ground. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, Now, Law and Kim went on a road trip to the area in order to actually see the collection. They wanted to actually experience it firsthand and come back with some recordings and some photographs and first-hand accounts of it but they were told that viewing it as a no-go in fact the wow. person they spoke to about it didn't even know where it was being housed uh, they also discovered that the house in which annie hooper had lived no longer seemed to exist uh, as if all the traces of her work and her presence had just been very conveniently wiped clean hmm. so has the house been demolished what, what if the entire house had crossed over into the spirit world or was taken there Uh, It occurred to me that maybe Annie Hooper had left more of her creations hidden in the house and that they were taken into the spirit world in order to protect them from whoever it is has been hiding them away in our world. So you could craft a mean adventure around uh, needing to locate these effigies. Rather than being in the possession of the museum, maybe they've passed into the hands of a sinister organization, uh, a powerful mage, uh, a group of werewolves who are guarding them to prevent the spirits connected to them from making use of the effigies. Uh, like law says, you decide. And whatever you decide, you have to sh- make sure to head over to our forums and check out the pictures of these things. You managed to get some scans of Polaroids that were taken a few years ago. Creepy, creepy, beyond creepy. Really freakish-looking little things they are. Great stuff.
0: So we have a couple ideas here you can use if you're deemed the Fallen game or, Mark said, maybe a mage game. Or uh, I was thinking a good hunter game to recollect these artifacts to bring them in.
1: Hmm. Richard, what do you Richard, think about that? Yeah, Does this, does this spark any, any spooky ideas for you, Rich?
2: Absolutely. I've actually been to Buxton. Um, it's a lovely town. It's out in Cape Hatteras. And the uh, Atlantic right by there is actually called the Graveyard of the Atlantic because so many ships have gone down. Oh, wow. Uh, oh wow! So, you know, you could get a uh, little bit of a ghostly connection there. Some of the spirits that uh, were attached to some of the ships that went down. Uh, a few oh, other nice. possibilities. Yeah. Fun. Cool.
1: So that's, that's interesting. You, you could have her then. Uh, she, she's channeling the, the ghosts of, of dead sailors who are, the you know, lost story mentioned the sinking of the ships by German submarines, and she then finds herself being contacted by them and finding some way to uh, to bring them some kind of rest or maintain contact with the uh, the world of, of the living.
2: Absolutely. Or ships have been going down there for a long time, so maybe uh, something was pulling those ships down, and uh, that could be cool. an angle. There's also, I believe, another local ghost legend related to Theodosia Burr, uh, the daughter of um, Aaron Burr, Mm -hmm. and perhaps you could conflate those two. So there's just actually a wealth of uh, supernatural material related to that area that you could play with. How does the Theodosia story go? Um, If I remember correctly, uh, she was on a um, vessel headed north to reunite her with her father, and it was wrecked, and uh, she was the only survivor of the wreck, and if memory serves, uh, she went quite mad and uh, lingered for a long time along the beach um, in the Outer Banks. So there's, uh, there's multiple versions of the story, but uh, oh, no. there's at least some solid historical basis there.
1: Oh, wow, okay. So that's something worth looking into as well. Cool, nice tip. Okay, cool. Well, tell so us. thank you, yeah, thanks to yeah. say thanks to Laura again for digging that one up. Laura has, uh, has produced some of our finest secret frequency submissions. So uh, yeah, Laura, um, keep on being creepy. We uh, we love it.
0: <laughs> and we have pages and pages of uh, secret frequencies. People uh, actually ask me on Facebook, how do I submit that? I told them just go right to the forums, wildgamesproductions and drop us uh, an email. Right in the darker days forum. There's a whole thread there that says secret frequency submissions, and we have, there's I don't know 10, 12, 15 pages worth of stuff there.
1: You've got a you've got a great backlog. We're continually working through. There's a couple of great ones came in recently about pyramid-shaped tombs in uh, Liverpool, which we're going to get to shortly. Very enjoyable.
0: Definitely. And let's get on to uh, the main part of the show, and that is Richard Dansky. And we have a whole bunch of questions asked, uh, sh- uh, as you saw, Richard. For you, but we're going to start off with the most important question: Is how did you start? How did you start in gaming? As far as writing,
2: uh, <laughs> I was an original D and D blue boxer, actually. Ooh. So I've been gaming since, I guess, sixth grade. Um, the set that I had was actually one of the ones that predated um, them, including dice in the box. So you had these little... So you boxes. had the chits. Oh, right. Yep, and I remember I was very, very excited when I finally got my first set of polyhedron dice. Um, unfortunately, they were sort of melon orange. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Yeah, really not the most, um, what you'd call, prepossessing dice. But I, I started off, as I said, as a blue boxer, and uh, there were a few kids in my school who played, and from there we branched out into Villains and Vigilantes and uh, the Chaosium Michael Moorcock games and Call of Cthulhu, Mm. and really anything we can get our hands on. Uh, I was actually very lucky in that my parents really liked the fact that I was doing role-playing games because they thought it would uh, spark imagination and uh, help with my storytelling. as writing even then, so whenever my mom saw some sort of role-playing module on sale somewhere, she would buy that and bring it home and so I ended up with this incredibly diverse collection of James Bond role-playing game Game Master screens and Dungeons & Dragons modules and um, whatever she found, Um, and that all sort of synthesized into all the games that my group of friends would play.
1: That's That's really cool. Wow.
0: That's lucky, because all I got was that, you're going to go straight to hell for playing those games. So (laughs) Anyway, Mark, why don't you go on to the next one? Okay, Mark is having some mic difficulties, so we'll just go on to the next question. How did you get started in uh, game designing and writing? Was uh, White Wolf your first uh, writing gig?
2: Uh,
0: White Wolf was my
2: first professional writing gig. Um, I'd known Jennifer Hartshorn in college. Actually, we had uh, done LARPing um, and a few other things together, and uh, she went down to White Wolf, and she was actually the first person to contract me uh, for some work in uh, haunts, actually. And that was my first professional writing. And I remember I actually wrote most of that. Um, I did two chapters in that book, the Tillinghast Mansion um, and a casino in Atlantic City. And I wrote that while I was proctoring fake SATs for um, (laughs) high school kids in the basement of this church in, uh, I think it was Norwood, Massachusetts, outside Boston. I was doing graduate work at Boston College then, and the only time I had when I could actually sit down and write so I was administering these fake exams, uh, for uh-huh. the review. So I'm crammed in at this desk, which is designed for a nine-year-old. You know, yeah, frantically scribbling while I'm hearing C C B B A A in the background, and uh, that's how a lot of that got written.
1: That's the the Wraith book, Haunts. Yes. Okay, excellent. Yeah, that's cool. a good book, Matt. Sorry, I don't know what happened to my mic there. I didn't hear anything odd here. <laughs> oh, we yeah. just you just cut out. No problem. Like the
2: subject material or what? We... <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, so, and just for our listeners who, who, who don't know, you wrote for White Wolf from, uh, from like, 94 through to... 2003? 2003. 2003, was it? Yeah.
2: I think that was the last one. The, the last projects I actively did were the um, Book of Changing Breeds for Werewolf, um, Abyssals for Exalted, and um, the, uh, some fiction for the initial Orpheus book. And those three all seemed like good ways to come full circle on the things that I'd done for White Wolf. Yes. Right, it's, it's, a, it's
1: a good considerable stretch, I mean, and with a, with a massive output as well. Um, I was trying to find a, a particular game that you'd work most on, and apart from the obvious, like Wraith, it just seemed that you were, as a contributor or an author or a developer, all over the place. So uh, you really got a, a good feel for the world of darkness across the board, it looks.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, I, ju- I really enjoyed the setting, and I really enjoy writing, so anytime there was an interesting project, I was very happy to, to uh, take it on. Um, just it was such a rich and rewarding sandbox for lack of a better putting it to play in there was so much in the world of darkness and there were so many possibilities so i always got a you know would would hear about a an opportunity and go ooh, that sounds cool i could do this with it and i can do this with this and um it was it was just fun to tackle all the different angles
1: excellent well what was it like working for white wolf back in those early days i mean in 1994 the game lines have only been going for a couple of years then mm.
2: It was insomniacal, for one thing. (laughs) Um, I started, uh, actually, freelancing while I was still up in Boston, um, and I was hired as the Wraith developer and the Mind's Eye Theater developer at the beginning of the summer of 95. I actually did my first couple books from Boston. um, Mm -hmm. But when I moved down, it was definitely a very different experience from the day job I'd had up there. I'd worked in an office, and it was suit and tie, and... um, yeah, White Wolf, there were a lot of action figures and um, loud music and people bringing their dogs into work and wearing Lucador masks and <laughs> you know, people in the office playing Darkstalkers at 3 in the morning. And it was just a very different vibe. But it was also really, and I you know hate to say I'm sorry with this, but it was really exciting because everybody really cared about the books and was really excited about what we were doing. And we'd really all kill ourselves to make sure these things were as good as possible. Yeah. so when I say you know, there were people there at 3 in the morning there were people there at 3 in the morning I wasn't the only one and you know, we, were, we would do what it took to make sure the books were as good as humanly possible
1: well you can really feel that, that sort of excitement and passion when you're reading over some of the early material uh, you know, it really does drip off the page um, now you mentioned you got H- hired as the developer for, for Wraith fairly early on then and you did a lot of work on that line what was it like getting started on, on such for, for, for the time what was such a dark and unusual game line
2: uh, to uh, to paraphrase Beetlejuice, I myself am dark and unusual, so it, uh, <laughs> it was a pretty good fit. Um, I actually I'd done my thesis on Lovecraft, and oh, I really art okay art fiction. Yeah, my first publication was actually in the academic journal Lovecraft Studies. H.P. Hmm. Uh, uh, Lovecraft: Spheres of Influence, Transgression, and the Use of the Utterly Other. I, I want to say that was the title in issue thirty-one. So you know, I was already soaking in this long before I came to White Wolf. And it was just a a great match of subject matter and person to go wallowing in the subject matter. Um, um, But, you know, it was like I said, I love the classic horror. I love ghost stories um, and I was very widely read in horror at that point. So it was just a great opportunity to play with all the stuff that I've been thinking about reading these books and thinking about what Lovecraft had done.
1: So do you think that, I mean, he, was he a strong influence on, on the design that you did for Wraith, or did you synthesize a number of horror influences, or how did that go?
2: Uh, it, it really was a synthesis. Um, and Back in the day, I got asked a lot, what were the most important things in um, building Wraith? And the two answers I gave, actually, were uh, Hesiod's Theogony and Firmwild's um, Our town just in terms of sort of the philosophical underpinnings, but the actual constructs. Um, Lovecraft, Thomas Ligotti, Algernon Blackwood, M.R. James, um, all of those really classic horror writers who understood that sometimes less is more in in storytelling and sometimes you really just can throw everything at the reader um, and go over the top.
1: Right. Excellent. Uh, Do you still play Wraith?
2: I don't play but I really wish I could unfortunately the job I've got now sends me on the road all the time so I can't really set up a consistent campaign of anything but Mm. I do have all the books and they are in my office in a place of honor and if I ever actually get a uh, good long stretch at home I may yet uh, fire the campaign back up again
1: oh nice that would be fun Um, Now, last last episode, I think it was, Vince, we did a special feature on Dark Reflection um, Spectres, which was a particularly grim book. Um, Do you have any particular memories about working on that supplement? I mean, did you have to visit more graveyards than normal that week, for example?
2: I was in Boston, so most of the graveyards that I could get access to were pretty thoroughly weathered. They were 300, 400 years old, and (laughs) Boston weather had been a number on the stones, so. No, um, that was actually the very first book I worked on, and the authors on it. This um, one was in Australia, if I remember correctly, and so there'd be a lot of frantic one a.m. emails and things like that. Um, I was actually doing that from Boston before I moved down to Atlanta, so most of the development was actually done at my uh, then girlfriend's kitchen table, um, mm. frantically in the middle of the night, and you know looking at the concept art and gone in and go, "Ooh, I'm not showing her this one." No. <laughs> nice. But uh, um, know, I, it really was the dive into deep water because that was about as you know twisted as it got. And yeah.
1: yeah. Well, I rem- I remember vividly the first time I read that book. I was on a long bus ride somewhere, in the middle of the day on the bus, and having to just take every day, every twenty minutes look out the window at the trees and the flowers and the sun. And okay, deep breath, back into the book. Yeah, so it was really quite a striking read. Hmm,
2: thank you know um, it really was very well written. Um, the project was underway by the time I came on board. Um, so I, I was just able to pick it up and run with it, but uh, you know people really seemed to have strong feelings about that book and they mostly liked it, and they found it useful for the games, which was of course the the most important thing. Well, that was
1: the focus. That was the focus of our feature last week. Was okay. Let's look at these things, these spectres, and you know, let's take things from the book and show how it lets you plug them right into play immediately. Um, so yeah, it's it's rather you know rather than just a sort of gratuitous exploration of nastiness, it is it's full of uh, full of, of you know information and ideas and hooks and no, oh, I'm really impressed. So what what would, what's the favourite book that you worked on uh, for the wraith, the wraith line? Do you have a favourite uh, favourite baby there?
2: Oh dear. <laughs> the one that was probably the most fun was the Shadow Players' Guide, hmm. because that uh, just let everybody pull out all the stops and, and go to town. Yeah. Um, you know the shadow voice was was interesting, it was a lot of fun to play with, and if you were writing in that voice, you could really cut loose in a lot of ways. so that one was was a lot of fun to work on. Obviously, the one that I'm, I'm most proud of is Charnel Houses of Europe. But yes. Yes. I, I wouldn't call that one a fun project to work on.
1: Uh, no. 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 And, and that's a remarkable book because it's still uh, it's still mentioned today uh, and, and held in high regard as something that treats a uh, an awful subject with intelligence and respect. And it's often pointed to as an example of here's how you do it right. Um, so yeah, that's definitely one worth uh, worth remembering. Thank you.
2: Yeah, that was that was a very hard book to do, obviously, and there was a lot of soul searching involved. and I was very lucky to have the support of uh, my family and Janet Berliner, who wrote the introduction um, and uh, and of White wolf in doing that project. And um, I really appreciate the effort that everyone who's involved with it put in and the dedication to you know doing that right.
1: Was that something you you'd pitched yourself then a- t- topic you wanted to, you'd wanted to tackle or did, was it floated in the within the company as a as a supplement
2: uh, that that one was was my idea I drove that forward i mean um we were very very intent on this whole you know games for adults um we're building mm. doing mature games these aren't this, these things aren't kids stuff um but there was this curious lacuna in the timeline when you got to world War two yeah. Uh, and I figured if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. We're going to tackle this head on. Um this this is subject matter that seems to offer that opportunity. And like I said, there was a lot of soul searching and there were a few people who did spit takes when I said that I wanted to do it. Um but you know, they backed me and um Mark Senzik, who wrote under the name Jonathan Black, and Rob Hatch and um, Janet Berliner who did the introduction did a wonderful, wonderful job with it. And it was it really put me through the ringer, but I believe it was worth yeah. it. Yeah. Actually I got to talk to Art Spiegelman very briefly about that book. He was in Atlanta. Oh did you? Yeah, he was doing a reading for um, trying to remember what the what, what the reading was for, but he was doing a reading and um, afterwards, I was able to go up to him and say how much I appreciated his work, um, and that you know I was doing this book, and he looked at me and said, "Good luck." And, uh... <laughs> oh, excellent.
1: Now, Wraith eventually it, it came to its end, um, uh, and uh, from the perspective of a consumer of, of a, a, a buying gamer, it seemed to come to its end a little sooner than I than I was expecting. Um, What was it like wrapping it up from your end? Was that hard to do? I mean, could you see it coming? Did you guys get much notice that Wraith was was, going to finish?
2: Um, We did get some notice. And, um, again, I'll give White Wolf Management full credit for letting us do Ends of Empire to really wrap everything up and have it go out with a bang. A lot of game lines, a lot of comic book lines, whatever, they just chop them off, boom, that's done. And we were given the opportunity to... You know, really tie everything up and make sure that we gave folks, you know, what they've been looking for. We didn't leave too many uh, threads dangling. And it wasn't, we didn't have, you know, three years and then it ends kind of advanced warning. I'd sort of done a, uh, a much longer story arc that I was hoping to work out, but there was enough time to compress stuff down to get all the key elements in there.
1: Okay, right, right. I mean, the, the Ends of Empire contains, uh, uh, is it one or two of the guild books? I, I can't remember. I think it's got one or two of them in. Uh, were there other books in planning that never saw the light of day? I mean, you mentioned an extended arc, but were there actually books sitting on the development schedule uh, that were just, you know, that had to get kicked?
2: There were a few books on the schedule or that had been proposed that got cut, yeah. And you know some right. of those, um, like uh, Memoirs of a Ferryman, yeah, never got past the okay, it's going to be this many pages, and it's hopefully going to come out this month. stage, and others um, got their content folded into Ends of Empire.
1: Okay, what was Memoirs of a Ferryman going to be about?
2: Uh, that was going to be a Book of Nod-style book uh, from the viewpoint of a Ferryman.
1: Oh, how cool. <laughs> oh, that would have been, oh, wow.
2: That
0: would have been interesting,
2: uh, yeah. Yeah, that never really got past the, okay, here's what I like to have on the schedule stage, but there was that, yeah. there was going to be um, a book on the Unlidded Eye, there was... Uh, Going to be some more material exploring the far shores. Um, oh, like I nice. said, I, I've done this J. Michael Straczynski-esque massive Babylon Five plot arc um, with you know what the signposts were and what the key books to be whenever. And uh, when, when the end came, I was able, fortunately, able to just sort of compress it down and make sure that all the big questions got answered.
1: Yeah. All right. Interesting. Um, now you then went on. You said to work on Orpheus briefly. What was that like after having spent so much time with Wraith?
2: It was actually very pleasant. Um, Lucian Solbaum was the developer on that book. Lucian's an hmm. old and dear friend of mine. Um, he'd started writing for me very early on, and you know, having the chance to you know, swap roles and me do some writing for him, that, that felt cool. Um, he did a great job of the book, and it was a real pleasure to work for him.
1: Cool. Orpheus is a good, good little line. And it's nice... Uh, it's a nice that it's you know, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's just six supplements and done. Uh it's a nice format. Yeah. Um now Finally, from me, before I, I, I let Vince uh, uh, take over for, uh, take the wheel for a bit, um, you also did a smattering of work on Mage. Um, I'm, this is purely selfish because I'm a huge Mage fan. Uh, what was yeah. that like to work on? I mean, I noticed you worked on things like the Book of Mirrors or the Fantastic Book of Worlds. Uh, they must have been a blast to contribute to. Uh, not to mention, I saw you had some credits for the second edition core book as well.
2: I have to confess, Mike, credit on the second edition core book was largely... Um, due to the fact that I was the only person at White Wolf who knew how to use the indexing function on PageMaker, <laughs> <laughs> so I was the one doing the indexes. And then generally that was at three in the morning because it took that long for everybody else to finish up. Wow. After okay. about the morning. But yeah, that was that was my credit on uh, Mage 2nd. Well, it's got an index that works, you know,
1: which is not always yeah. to be said about White Wolf books. So, you know, congratulations there. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Thank you. I worked hard on those. And uh, yeah, I did sprinkle a few Easter eggs. If you. Uh, if you look in the Oblivion Index, I think there's a reference to my favorite bar from Boston and a few other things. So, uh,
1: Okay. Were you responsible for the pants?
2: Uh, no, the pants was uh, Ethan. Um, I think okay. were, the character sheet for Noisha was asymmetrical, and they needed one more stat to put in there. And uh, he just said pants, <laughs> which, which was pure Ethan. So, I mean, I love it. Nice.
0: Uh, okay, cool. I got a couple brief questions for you. When we spoke earlier about White Wolf, uh, how it was working for them in the office, uh, you talked about the people that were writing the actual books. How about the executives? What were they like back then?
2: Oh, you see, they were uh, up in the front of the building, and to get to them, you actually had to cross this tiger pit, and then <laughs> there was this moat and there were these alligators. And <laughs> No, it, it was a very informal company. So, you know, anybody would come by and talk to anybody and offer their opinions on anything at any time. And we had a vicious, vicious series of lunchtime uh, Dune board game matches. Nice. Uh, Generally, uh, at least one of the Wick brothers would be in that, and Ben Monk, who was the the controller. Um, So, again, it was a, a very accessible and open company. And there wasn't, you know, you didn't have layers and channels to go through if you wanted to get yourself heard.
0: Oh, wow. Cool. Well, we've been hearing that a lot about White Wolf, them being not so formal like that, being very laid back and fun to work with, pretty much. Let's uh, look at one of your books that you had written for Vampire the Masquerade. I have in front of me the clan book La Sombra for second edition Vampire the Masquerade. Now, you were the main developer, creditor, writer on this book, along with Elizabeth Ditchburn. And uh, I was looking through this book yes. the, the other day, and how much of this book did you plan and write, I was wondering, and what things you exactly worked on in this book, if you remember back that far?
2: Oh, boy, that, that is a long way back. Um, <laughs> the, um, the central sort of conceit of them as you know, having these ties to uh, Spanish nobility and the Reconquista so that actually came out of um, some of the academic work I was doing at the time. I was doing a master's at Boston College. Um, initially, and I was getting into a lot of the really classic gothic novels like uh, Melmoth the Wanderer and The Monk by Matthew Lewis and all of those had these very lurid things set in Spain with the Inquisition and torture chambers and cannibal monks and all that stuff and uh, so that a lot of what's in that book bubbled out of that interest of mine, that academic work of mine, and Elizabeth and I worked on the book Um, sort
0: of bouncing up from that conception. Oh, wow. One thing I really, really like about this book is, well, first of all, it's easy to read because it's black with the white writing, but uh, I really like the fact that it's told from story point of views of someone telling a story to another person, and you incorporate all the different, uh, I should say, uh, disciplines and flaws and merits, and you kind of, make it into a story and then put in parentheses what it actually means, as opposed to just saying here's the merit, this is what it does, blah, blah, blah. I think that was really interesting and I was wondering how you decided to take that approach as opposed to the straightforward approach.
2: Well, I figured we were far far enough along in the clan book series I could try something a little different and the book itself such a strong voice that it just seemed natural to try it that way. Uh, There there were actually a lot of um, message board complaints back in the heyday of all games White Wolf uh, and people who didn't think that there were any new powers or new stats or anything else in the book, because so they couldn't find it because they weren't in the traditional format.
0: Oh, but...
2: Like I said, it really... Um, once the writing got started, that book had such a strong voice and a strong tone to it, it seemed to make perfect sense to try and do something a little different and not break the reader's immersion um, with, you know, slapping straight rules at them. Well, it's,
0: it's... I, I really... I've had this book for a long time since I'm looking at '96, and I really have always used this as the somber book. I know another one came out for the revised edition, but I've always referred back to this one because I just like the style it's written and it's easier to understand. So I do thank you for writing that book.
2: Oh, you're quite welcome. Um, and it was it was a collaborative effort and it was you know a lot of fun to work on. Um, and I, I promise I didn't spend more than 10 or 15 minutes a day. Slapping my hand on top of my head and imitating the guy on the cover as I was walking around the office. <laughs>
0: nice. <laughs> we'll have to post a picture so everybody who is unfamiliar with the book understands what he's talking about. <laughs> anyway, uh, let's step over to another vampire, Vampire the Masquerade, uh, the revised edition, which you are credited for writing in this book. Now, for this, what exactly did you remember writing in this? Because vampire uh-huh. was already set in its ways, but the revised edition was just updating and correcting and fixing.
2: It was, you know, a lot of, you know, that that was Rob Hatch and Justin Achille, and you know, Vampire had really sprawled so much that it, it made sense to sort of refocus everything. Right. Um, and what I did was the introduction, the, uh, the epilogue, the fiction in there, uh, some of the rules material, um, trying to remember if I did the storytelling chapter as well, but it was... It was a really interesting book to be working on, and you know, as we were doing that, we also knew we we're going to be doing, you know, *Guide to the Sabbat* and *Guide to the Camarilla*, and I did the, the bulk of the work on *Camarilla*, um, and it r- really sort of felt like a unified take on vampire. Um, they, all those were were part of a larger whole, but um, there was, I, I think the the um, getting the chance to do those little short fiction pieces, the chapter opener, was actually. Um, the most enjoyable part of that because you got to really mm-hmm. distill vampire storytelling down into 300, 400 words and try and tell an entire story and give people ideas coming from just that little tiny snippet of text. And uh, you know, judging from the reaction we got, people really liked those and were able to use those as springboards.
0: Oh, the beginning fiction of the book. Were, oh, oh, really? You wrote that? Oh, awesome. That was a great story that was being told There, I really... Love this whole entire book. I've played it for so many years on end. But <laughs> okay, let's uh, move into one of the final questions I have for you. Dark Ages, the Dark Ages line, uh, the Vampire, of the Dark Ages, or Dark Ages Vampire. Did you have a hand any of that, and what did you think about those lines?
2: Um, yeah, I was actually the developer on uh, Vampire of the Dark Ages for a while. Oh. Uh, initially, again, that was uh, that was Jen Hartthorn, Um and the project had been initiated. I want to say under Andrew Greenberg. It's just a source book and. Um, everybody saw the potential and under gen um it got expanded to a a supplementary rule book um with um it, you know its own rules and its own take on things and that was not what i would call a particularly easy development process and there was a lot of back and forth because um obviously it was you know something that people were very passionate about mm. at the same time they're a little nervous about it because it was something you know taking another take on something that was um uh, you know, so beloved and people were really into. Um But, yeah, that started uh, that way, and then I think uh, Justin did a couple books on it, and then I moved into that role after I handed off Wraith. And it was a lot of fun for me to play with because I'm a huge history buff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love this notion of, and, you know, as as William Manchester put it, world lit only by fire, this... You know, taking mm. vampires or creatures of darkness and throw them into this world where, you know, after the sun goes down, it's dark. There's these tiny fire lit down clays and that's it. And also one where faith was so powerful and so strong, such a central aspect of what people did. Um, and being able to play with those sorts of strictures and ideas um, was a lot of fun for somebody with the particular flavor of nerd hobbies that I had. <laughs>
1: Well, We're big fans of the Dark Ages line here on the show. We had Matt McFarland on as our first guest way, way back a year ago. Um, so yeah, it was uh, it was really interesting to uh, to see your name attached to that as well. Um, did, I saw that you'd wrote to Jerusalem by Night.
2: Yes, the uh, the original cover art for that is actually hanging on my uh, living room wall. Oh wow! Oh
1: nice! Oh cool! That's yeah, a good book.
2: That was, uh, yeah, thank you. It was um that that was. A juggling out there were an awful lot of authors uh, taking that one in a lot of different directions, and so the the most interesting thing about that was trying to unify all these different authors into a, a sort of singular vision um, and obviously you know with subject matter like that it 's also a little sensitive, mm. so making sure that we did did write by the subject material
1: well it's also interesting because its its structure was was atypical there 's not you know there 's not a typical single vampire ruler there's a number of shifting and you know interacting factions and allegiances i made it for quite a quite a startling and unusual read as well the way it was put together
2: thank you, you know, the, it you know it, the the city itself is so iconic and the history has featured so many waves of conquest coming through and so many people laying claim to that city that it seemed to make sense to to do that sort of narrative
0: Mm-hmm. I remember we commented when we reviewed that book a while back, Mark, that I was saying the story of Cain in the beginning of the uh, Dark Ages uh, book. I was I loved that that whole entire story about him and how everything came to be and the story down on. I really did. You write that, Richard, or
2: no? That that one wasn't me. I did do the uh, the intro fiction for Dark Ages, but um, that was but not the the history, as it were.
0: Oh, okay. That well, was still just wonderful too. So. <laughs>
1: Yeah the dark, the original Dark Age well, Vampire of Vampire the Dark Ages kicks off a for me a chronicle that lasted for 10 years oh. sp- you know, spawned by the, just the inspiration of that uh, original book so yeah, we got a huge amount of enjoyment out of that line that's very good
0: Cool Marco let's um, move over to, over to some just get into Richard himself now
1: yeah, moving on from, from, from White Wolf, because it's, it's several years in the past for you now. Um, there's, I looked at your Wikipedia entry today, and this, uh, to be honest, the thing that stood out the most is that you're credited with creating the humorous T-shirt which reads, Don't tell me about your character. Is this, is this true? Uh,
2: I'll tell you what is true. I need to update the Wikipedia page. <laughs> <laughs> um, te- actually, what happened was some, a guy, I believe his name is Jody Applegate, uh, came up with that shirt and had it at Origins... I want to say 96, and um, got ab- got absolutely mobbed at the booth that year with people wanting to tell me and Justin Achille, who was there with me, about their characters. And I will say that, you know, it's, it's fun talking to people about what they're doing with the game. It's really interesting and exciting hearing what people are doing and that they're having fun with everything else. And... He, you know, you don't want to just hear about their characters because people will tell you everything about their characters because they're proud of them and they're excited about them and they're invested in them. And Jody saw this going on and came over and said, you need this more than I do. <laughs> and then he started making up the nice ones. Um, he had the, the nice ones ready by Gen Con. So he actually should have the credit, and that's one of the reasons I need to update that page. Um, I, I, I like to think that I helped popularize it by wearing it everywhere and hoping <laughs> people took the hint. But... Uh, uh, credit where credit is due. So let's yes. talk
0: about our character. No, I'm
1: kidding. <laughs> you talk about Wolfman Jack. No, 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 no. Um, now you've you've had a fair bit of success as well with the writing fiction, uh, both media tie-in and your own original work. Now I'm guessing you started with the tie-in work first.
2: Uh, yes, the the first published fiction I had was actually in the uh, the, the Dark Tyrants uh, anthology that we did for Dark Ages, and it's a continuation of the opening fiction from uh, Vampire of the Dark Ages. Um, but I you know, started doing tie-in stuff. I did a Deadlands story for the anthology with no name. Um, did the Los Sombra novel, um, oh. the uh, the Exalted novels, and sort of branched out from there. Okay,
1: right. And and did that help you in getting your original work published? Uh, I mean, did you ha- did you have to go through the regular channels of finding an agent and a publisher, or had you already managed to make contacts that smoothed that uh, that road for you?
2: Well, the um, the agent I'm actually working with now, uh, Robert Fleck, is with uh, Janet Berliner's agency, Professional Media Services. So the the groundwork for that relationship was laid when um, she did the introduction um, to Charnel Houses of Europe. Right. Um, but at the same time, you know, I still had to write a book that uh, Bob thought was worth representing. So it, you know, you can let you knock on the door, but you still have to produce the goods. Yes.
1: Yes. <laughs> And how how do you find that working on tie-in media differs from working on your original material? I guess the obvious thing is you have a lot more freedom when you're working on your own stuff.
2: It's a lot more freedom, but there's, in some ways, it's a lot more work. Um, don't get me wrong, I, I really enjoy both, actually. The benefit to doing tie-in stuff is that somebody has already created the world, the rules, the structures, the history, everything like that, and you don't have to worry about building all that from scratch. You can just sort of take a look around and say, okay, here's the space I have to play in let's go play um, mm-hmm. with an original project. Um, there are no rules. And while the, the freedom is exhilarating, it's also um, risky in that you have to build everything from the ground up. And right. so the you know, there there's a lot of pleasure to be found in writing in either of those scenarios. You know, they both have benefits um, to me as a writer.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, Now, uh, Vince uh, mentioned this to me, actually, when we were talking about uh, uh, getting you on the show, um, that you're currently working for Ubisoft as the central Clancy writer?
2: That is correct.
1: What what does that entail? What is that?
2: (laughs) Um, Well, I've been with uh, RedStorm slash Ubisoft for 11 years since I left White Wolf. Um, And in my role as central Clancy writer, I'm sort of a writing resource for Ubisoft, primarily on the Tom Clancy's games, like uh, Splinter Cell, Ghost Recon, Rainbow Six, Ooh. Hawks, End War, things like that. Um, but on other games, if they need me to step in, um, and my day-to-day role actually varies a lot. It can be anything from, "Hey, Rich, you know, here's the story we're thinking of for this game. Can you take you know, a look at it and make sure that we're not repeating something we did in Rainbow Six Black Arrow, you know, seven years ago?" Okay. Or it can be something like, um, "Please." Write the script. It depends on the project and the needs and the timeline and everything else. So, you know, the most recent game I worked on was a Splinter Cell Conviction, where is actually uh, the scriptwriter on that game uh, working with Mike Lee, whom you might remember from Demon: The Fallen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that that was something that I was working on for three plus years. And at the same time, wow. there's some things that just come across my desk and I look at it and go, "Yep, this is cool. This is cool." No, we did we already did a mission there, um, and. You know that—that's the depth of my involvement.
1: Okay, and and you said you moved on to that straight from White Wolf. How, yes. I mean, did, did you? Uh, how did you get that job? Did you just fall into it, or were they were they advertising, or how did that go?
2: I don't think I fell into. It. I think I was pushed actually. You know. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> um, when there, there was a, a very lucky sort of confluence of factors, um, right around the time. Um, that I came up here, Red Storm, which had not yet been acquired by Ubisoft, was doing a game based on A, series a and McCaffrey novels, and they wanted a designer with a strong writing background. And uh, one of the folks here, Dave Weinstein, was a friend and really liked my work, and he suggested very strongly and many times uh, that I apply. Um, so, is um, that the the Perrin series? Uh, no, it was actually um, a game called Freedom. Um, it's based okay. on a science fiction series that wasn't tied into the, the Pern universe at all. all right. um, but so uh, with Dave's urging, I submitted a resume and was mildly surprised when I got a phone call saying, hey, we'd like to fly you out for an interview. Hmm, okay. Uh, so that, that was my initiation into video games. Um, the, the White Wolf work was the body of work that enabled me to get the interview, and um, that was 1999, um, I worked on Freedom and a um, Tom Quincy's Power Play Games called Shadow Watch, just doing some writing. And from there, the I've just sort of been able to, uh, to learn as I went and work on a lot of games since then.
1: So how does this compare to creating material for tabletop uh, role-playing games? I mean, have you had to, or did you already have, uh, have you had to develop a body of, of knowledge about how uh, computer games work or how console games work or are you are you largely on the sort of creative side of things?
2: Um, you, you have to know how games work to write games um, and not just... It, I'm not speaking in terms of you have to know coding though mm. that, that obviously is helpful. I'm terrible at that stuff but um, right. but you do have to understand how games work and that games are comprised of systems um, and you have to play games and understand the role that you know, writing has in a game. A, yeah. a game as opposed to a tabletop game. Um, the, the two biggest differences, I think, um, are this. One is that tabletop role-playing work is in many ways solitary or a very small team. Um, right. And you know, I if something was wrong with the book, I could go in and fix it. If we were 5,000 words short, I would sit down and write it. If um, you know something needed to change, I would change it. If a rule was broken, I would make the adjustment. And there's a lot of individual capability to make stuff happen. In a video game team, particularly you know the AAA A titles that I work on, like Splinter Cell, um, you know, these are huge teams, these are hundreds of people, and everything you do affects the work of many, many other people. So you can't do things on your own. You're you're always part of a a much bigger team and a much bigger process. And so you have to be aware of how your work has repercussions for everyone else. Um, You know, speaking, you know, just as a writer, okay, if I write a line of dialogue, I write that dialogue, um, someone has to record it, a sound engineer has to implement it in the game, an animator has to make sure the facial implements, um, uh, facial animations um, to make sure the dialogue looks good Cohen, the level designer needs to make sure that, you know, that line is scripted to go off at the exact right time, and so on and so forth, you know, all these people are involved in what is on the surface just a very simple line of dialogue. And so you have to be aware of all that and be part of the team. Um, And it's not better and it's not worse. It's just a very different sort of game-making experience. Um, In tabletop, all the tools are in the imagination. You can have anything you want. In a video game, absolutely everything has to be on the disc. um, and has to be thought of and has to be planned for. So that sort of difference in what your actual tool set is means lots of differences in the actual process of putting it together. And I guess that that leads to the other point, which is that tabletop games are very much about open-ended. The rule that I always had for my writers when I was developing Wraith was one plot hook per paragraph, no matter what. Mm. One story idea per paragraph. And you're encouraging people to take stuff and run with it and go wherever the hell they want. Um, You want them to go beyond the bounds of the book. You want to serve as a launching pad. And that's, that's the key to doing a successful uh, RPG book. On video games, there's only a limited set of things that players can do. Um, you can't make Sam Fisher stop and suddenly play Mahjong, for example. Um, <laughs> so what you want to do is design a game and write a game and tell a narrative within the game that makes players want to do the things that you're set up to do. Um, you want the story to encourage people to run around to Sam Fisher and jump out of shadows and pull people out windows and things like that. You want them to want to do the things that you can do. And so it's a, a very closed sort of aspect of design, at least in these linear narrative games that I've been working on. Um, but it's you're trying to do it very gracefully so people don't bang up against the walls of the possibilities. Instead, they go along for the ride and enjoy what they can do.
1: Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, so if, if, uh, you I, I if you have to recommend me one title, I play Xbox 360 games. If you had to recommend me one title that you've worked on recently that I should check out, which one would it be?
2: I would definitely say Conviction. Um, Conviction. It is okay. a wonderful game. Uh, Max Beland, who's the creative director on it, is absolutely brilliant. He and I have worked together on various games going all the way back to uh, Rainbow Six Raven Shield good game. Uh, in 2001 I think was when we first started working together and he did a fantastic job and the whole team did an amazing job on it um, so would highly recommend picking that one up jumping in
1: cool well it'll it might give me a break from playing endless hours of left 4 dead 2 so uh, <laughs> that'll be cool <laughs> god Lord. um now, we had a look at your, uh, at your, at your blog, your website, uh, before you we came on the show. You seem to be, have been extremely busy doing a number of book signing tours. Um, is this, has this been for Firefly Rain?
2: Uh, yes. Um, the, the paperback edition of Firefly Rain came out in April. The hardback actually came out back in 2008. Um, but the, we actually had to cancel the first book signing on account of Volcano. Um, yeah. so I was in England <laughs> doing some work at Ubisoft Studio in Newcastle. Um, and uh, the day before, I said to go home, and then you know, drive to Wilmington, North Carolina, which is where the book sign is going to be. Um, one of my coworkers said, hey, "Rich, have you looked at the weather report?" <laughs> Excellent. So,
0: what can so you, could you tell it? Go ahead, Mark. Sorry, No, go ahead. I was going to say, what can you tell us about this book, and uh, how can, how would our world of darkness listeners relate to this book, and how would it interest them if they want to pick it up and read it?
2: Uh, well, it is a ghost story. Um, it is a um, a little bit of a southern gothic, uh, what I call snowbird gothic, because um, I've been living in the South for 15 years, but I'm originally from Brooklyn and Philadelphia and other points on I-95 um, in the Northeast. But <laughs> it's about uh, the consequences of unkept promises um, and about the power of home. And I think those are elements that reflect in a different way some of the themes of Wraith. Um, obviously, fetters were unfinished business, um, and the, the spirit of the place could be reflected in the architecture that you saw in the, in the Shadowlands long after the, um, a physical building had been destroyed. And while this doesn't tackle those themes in the same way, um, it is very much about um, the power of promises and commitment and about the, the sort of genius loci of the place where you come from and the pull that has on you. There's a there's a lot that's left unsaid at the end of the book, I think, about the uh the town of Merrifield, which is where the story is set. Mm. And uh I think there there's plenty of material for enterprising um storytellers to run with that and see where they can go.
0: Cool. And uh we were looking at your blog, we also discovered you uh well you discovered
2: the delights of Yorkshire pudding. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> um I was um, actually stranded in London for an extra week. I know it's a terrible place to be stranded. Oh, you know, yeah. Of all the seas in the world to get trapped by a volcano, you can do an awful lot worse than London. Oh, uh,
0: yeah.
2: <laughs> and I have many Fine. friends in London who I've met either through White Wolf or the video game writing, and uh, they, they all went on what Rihanna Pratchett called Rich Quest, mm-hmm. which was meeting up with me for dinner or drinks or whatever in the various nights of my uh, confinement in London. And so... Um, Actually it's Adam Tinworth, um, Adders from the old Wraith list, who folks may remember, and his wife and Rihanna and I um took an afternoon wandering around Islington and we stopped for lunch and uh, that that was my first Yorkshire pudding. And of course, with all those eyes on me I could not not get it, you know. Yeah. After I'd, you know, confessed that I'd never had it before.
0: Wow!
1: Uh, excellent. Yorkshire putting down in London. I don't know. That's, that's something of heresy over here. I think you ought <laughs> to get yourself up to Yorkshire for that. <laughs> now you, you mentioned that you were in Newcastle. That's actually. Uh, I was born just down the road from there. Um, well, how did you find that contrasted to London as a, as a place to visit?
2: It was uh, it was a very enjoyable place. Was, I actually did the Newcastle ghost tour, which was a lot of fun. Oh, cool! Yeah, hmm. and I I can tell you now if they they put an EMF meter in my hand, it goes squee. <laughs> so that means I attract ghosts. I am ghosts, um, or I've actually got a battery stuck in my palm somewhere. But yeah, that that was part of what happened on the tour. Um, but you know, Newcastle was a lot of fun um, as a, a walking city. As as I said, Ubisoft sends me all over the place um, for work to you know to, to go to various studios it has around the world. And the thing I like to do most is a, after work just wander around and you know sort of try and get the the, the feeling for a place. And it was very enjoyable, you know, st- you know, strolling through the streets of Newcastle at night and just sort of soaking it up.
1: Well, it's got an interesting topography. It's not, such a, it's not a huge city. It's, you know, it's, it's a, a reasonably sized. and It's got the, you know, the little hills and stuff going on. In it. So, yeah. Oh, cool. Um, so, uh, so, what are you reading
2: at the moment? Anything that's particularly cool? Um, I'm a reading omnivore. Um, mm-hmm. So, I, I literally have a book for each room in the house for when I wander into that particular room. Um, also, two in my car, and uh, well, you, you get the general idea. Yeah. Um Well, I'd see. I'm working on uh, Thomas Ligotti's "Conspiracy Against the Human Race." Um, Ligotti is an author whose work I just absolutely love. Um, it just it reads beautifully. It sounds beautiful when you read it out loud, and just the ambition of his imagination is fantastic. So I'm I'm working through that, but it's you know it's not something I can read more than a few pages of at a time, simply because there's so much and so rich. Um, mm-hmm. I just figured finished up a uh, Willem Pugmire short story collection, um, Douglas Clegg's uh, Neverland, sorry Neverland, which is an absolutely brilliant horror novel. And let's say I think next I'm going to be jumping on Jeff Vandermeer's Third Bear. Um, one of my deep dark secrets is that I do book reviews for um, Green Man Review and Fantasy Magazine. So every so often, large piles of books appear on my doorstep, <laughs> um, which which keeps me happy and contented um, until I, I chew through them with insane rapidity.
1: <laughs> nice. So, um, and as for your your own work, what are you what are you working on at the moment?
2: Uh, well, let's see. I just uh, wrapped up a video game ghost story called vaporware Ooh. Um, they say you know write what you know so uh, we'll, we'll see uh, where that goes thanks it's, uh, w- what happens when the project doesn't want to get cancelled so uh, <laughs> hopefully folks will find that enjoyable and uh, John Hay who's a friend of mine and I just collaborated on a uh, private detective novel where the uh, private detective is a sasquatch so we'll, we'll see uh, uh, was
0: some, uh, oh wow
2: So working title is The Big Feet um, my wife wasn't <laughs> speaking to me for a while after I told her that one she's not big on puns, but uh,
1: <laughs> uh, excellent excellent um now as as for as for books in general, is there a particular book that you wish you'd written
2: that you didn't um <laughs> all all the time i like I said, I'm an omnivorous reader our our house is decorated in books I think we have twenty three bookshelves full
0: oh um, wow
2: and there, there are so many books that I've read and gone. This, this is wonderful. I wish I'd done this, or you know, I can't do that, or what can I learn from this? Um, you know, some of Thomas Ligotti's work, um, obviously. Um, Charles, some of the Oxrun Station novels by Charles Grant, which I think are just these brilliant, delicate little masterpieces of of modern horror. Um, John Meyer Meyer's Silverlock, um, which is just absolutely filled with joy at literature. I don't know if you've read that one, but highly highly recommend it. And there there are so many great writers out there writing now um that it is a wonderful time to be a writer and just sit back and enjoy, and, you know, not look at stuff and go you know and nitpick or anything like that, just you know appreciate all the talent. I mean, Dan Simmons, Tim Powers, um Jeff Strand, James Moore, there's so many great writers out there whose work I can just sit back and get lost in.
1: Outstanding. Um, Now, I guess you'll have noticed that those last few questions were stolen right from your essay on seven things you should always ask a writer.
2: Hmm. You know, I I wasn't going to say anything for fear of looking like I'd, uh, you know, was thinking a little bit too much about my own writing. But
1: uh. (laughs) cool. So the the, the one that I've left off is: uh, can can I buy you a drink? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, actually, Vince will have to do that. But i am tell you, you should look me up next time you're in the UK, and I'll, yeah, yeah. Sh- Yorkshire pudding in.
0: short drive drink. to Pennsylvania, where the land the free writer, free writers are, the freelancers. Why I saying free writers? <laughs> yeah.
2: well, let's see. Um, I'm actually going to be passing through Pennsylvania fairly shortly, so be warned. But
0: uh, oh no, <laughs> <laughs> there you go, Vince, Richard Chung on my doorstep. Uh, where's my drink? <laughs>
2: Just stay far from I-95, and you'll be fine.
0: Oh no!
1: Oh no! <laughs> So the one question that essay actually I just think was, was would be interesting to hear is, what's your process for writing? How do you go about it on a daily basis? Yeah, that's a good question.
2: Um, I think the, the important thing is, one, to have a daily basis for writing. You need to mm. be comfortable writing um, so you can actually sit down and do it. Um, the more comfortable you are, the, the more relaxed you are, and the, the easier it is to get stuff going. If you stop and start and um, never really sort of build up a rhythm, you always have to fight Against all the distractions, and remind yourself in a writing state. To, to get into a writing state, uh, my process tends to involve um, my sitting down in my office, which really is sort of a writer cocoon. Um, when we we bought the house, that room was painted lavender with pink trim and a a lovely delicate um, lavender and white border up at the top of the room. I looked at that and said, I'm not writing in here. So <laughs> we, we Sounds took like my now. microphone. And I remember Jackie Cassata and Nikki Rowe always talked about the world of insufficient illumination. But uh, <laughs> the, uh, we, So we took that down and uh, painted it a very dark, um, almost, would you say, blood red um, with mm-hmm. a, a dark gray trim. And so now it's, it's my personal chamber of horrors filled with all my horror novels and my cryptozoology reference and my North Carolina ghost story reference and all these um, character jugs that are just basically disembodied heads with handles on them. Oh. Various bits of art from the the White Wolf days, um, you know Ron Spencer's railroad road picture from Raid right second. Oh wow! one uh, just piece from Charnel Houses and the um, the Rasputin picture from Puppeteers. Um, <laughs> yeah. So that that creates sort of the the space where I can write. You know, this that place says this is where you write to me, and I turn off all the lights and turn on the appropriate music. And, you know, this is going to sound terribly twee, but I actually make a playlist for each project I'm working on um, of appropriate music to sort of help me get in the mood. And when I hear that stuff, it reminds me, okay, you should be working on this project now. And that has a good and a bad to it because, you know, after I'm done with the project, I sort of can't listen to that stuff without immediately wanting Mm -hmm. to go back and do some more edits. Um, You know, Drive-By Truckers (laughs) and Tom Petty and Johnny Cash were dead to me for about six months after I finished up Firefly Rain. Uh, (laughs) Nice. Yeah, and then I just sit down and sit in front of the computer and I've got the music going and the right light and if I'm lucky, it flows
1: That's interesting It's interesting, the comment about music um, uh, long-term listeners will know I'm, I'm a really obsessively unhealthy fan of Clive Barker and he he paints in the evening and plays music while he paints but he, he says that he doesn't like playing music while he writes because he finds that the rhythm of the music dictates the rhythm of his writing uh, but you find that it actually complements the uh, the written word?
2: It does well. You know, first of all, bear in mind that you know my collection is filled with stuff like Van de Graaff generators, so the word rhythm is not really <laughs> applicable. Um, the I think a lot of music is intended to create a specific mood and a specific tone. Movie soundtracks in particular, and yeah. if you pick the appropriate stuff, and you know the mood and the tone that you're going for um, with your characters and your story then you can get a good synthesis of that. You know, it's not I don't throw my iPod on shuffle and yeah, in the middle of working on a horror novel, oh wait, here come the go-go's. Um, <laughs> that doesn't work. But you know, I'll sit down at the start of the project and say, okay, this is you know, a ghost story set in the deep south. Who's appropriate? Johnny Cash, particularly the American recordings, absolutely. Tom Petty, yes. Drive by Truckers, yes. Kentucky Headhunters, yeah. Um, sticks, not so much. No, and winger, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think of a project where winger would be appropriate, <laughs> and I'm not finding it. So if you can come up with anything, let me know. But
0: All right, well, we'll give you some white line. How's that? Uh, no. <laughs> okay, Mark, I think you had one last question uh, or two.
1: Yeah, I was just going to be mean and ask you where you get your ideas. <laughs> How does that mean? Well, Richard wrote another essay saying, entitled, uh, Seven you. Questions You Should Never Ask a Writer. <laughs> and that was on there. So. I know.
2: The, the standard answer to that question um, seems to be someplace in upstate New York. And whether it's Poughkeepsie or, Schen- Poughkeepsie or Schenectady, you know, people seem to like answers up there. Utica, I think, gets you know, called a lot, too. Um, but um, you know, both of my sisters went to school in upstate New York, so I'm going to leave that as their territory. Um, in, in terms of where I actually get my ideas, um, everywhere. Um, just—it's a, It's a case of looking around the world and saying, okay, what happens if I give this a little twist? Um, and a lot of times they come out of specific images. Um, and that it, that just sort of imprint themselves. And I say, okay, how do we get to this tableau? What does this mean? Uh, Firefly Rain. A lot of the the central impetus behind that came from the first time we went out to my wife's family farm in Missouri. Um, I'm a city boy. I grew up across the street from a golf course. Um, you know, I think deer are still exciting wild animals. While anybody who worked on a farm knows that they are very tall rats with a really good publicity agent. Um, but <laughs> this was you know my first time out on the farm. And the first night, she took me for a walk on the property to show me where she'd grown up. And um, the moon was full, and it was you know, this is way out um, in the middle of nowhere, a little town in Missouri called Millersburg. And um, you know, so the the sky was filled with stars, and the moon was so bright you could read by it. And we're walking through these fields, and the the uh, the property next door, the lot had been allowed to grow up um, with woods. It was you know very thickly forested. And the shadow that these trees cast and where the line on the ground lay was so sharp. I mean, it was absolutely clear, absolutely razor sharp. And that image of you know one piece of land bathed in light and one piece of land absolutely pitch black really stuck with me. And that turned into the image um, from very early in the book where Jacob, who is the narrator, comes home and he sees the family house and the family farm um, absolutely dark in the middle of all these fields of fireflies and the fireflies won't come onto his land.
1: Mm. Wow. Okay.
2: So for you know, from that image, I was able to extrapolate back, okay, here's how we got here, here's what it means, and hopefully here's what it means going forward.
1: Nice. That's a strong image. Thank you. Okay, so I
0: have a uh three last questions for you, and Mark knows the very last one, but I'll, go on. <laughs> I'll save that one. <laughs> now, we we're working back for, we'll go back to your White Wolf career. Did you have a hand in the Trinity line, or did you have any input on that line, or was that just something you didn't touch at all? Uh,
2: I, was, I was involved in the uh, the world building, the design for that. Um, I wrote um, with Bruce Ball an adventure series for that, uh, did a lot of the uh, the design and writing for the Escalopians as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that was a lot of fun, you know. The um, Andrew Bates um, was the developer on that, and he was less of a science fiction nut than I was. So when he started working on that, I would just walk into his office with a stack of books and say, "Okay, here's research. Oh, and here's more research, and here's more research." Um, and I, I think I may have frightened him with giant stacks of Arthur C. Clarke. Um, but you know, that that was something that I was involved in. You know, really, the whole company pitched together. Um, And worked on that but it was it was a lot of fun working on that and actually the chance to collaborate with Bruce who's uh, a friend and I think an insanely talented author um, on those adventures was was a lot of fun as well and uh, you can see where I snuck a couple of my personal obsessions in there there's a section in um, I think the second book of that uh, adventure trilogy where they're talking about uh, lunar baseball and people hitting the ball you know three miles and things like that so fun just sticking race notes like that into a, a science fiction setting.
0: Cool. I have to look for that now. I haven't looked at those books in a while, but now I have to look that up. Awesome. Uh, if White Wolf contacted you today and said, Richard, here's XX amount of money that you want, what would you want to write? What would you like to see written? What would you like to develop with them?
2: Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, I know. Wow, that that is not a question I, I, I've thought about. Um... Let me preface it by saying that I am satisfied with the work that I did there. Um, mm-hmm. That I that I thought I thought I brought it to a good close. I'm very proud of the work, um, and proud of you know the opportunity to work with the folks that I did work with there, both in house, you know people like Ethan and Aileen and Rich Thomas and uh, Brian know, absolutely wonderful people to work with, and the freelancers, you know Bruce, Jeff Grabowski, uh, James Morse. Um, it really was a wonderful body of work to be a part of. And you know, if I'm happy leaving it where it is, um, all that work and, and that 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 legacy for lack of a better word, and I know that sounds horribly pretentious, but mm. that that was a lot of love and a lot of effort and a lot of um a lot of care. Right uh, that that I'm you know, if I never touched it again I would still be very proud of it. Um, if there were one book, one project that I could do, I would love to. I guess take another crack at Wraith, um, and you know it's it's had some time to rest. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still think there is tremendous possibility in that world, um, and maybe it would be in a different format. Maybe it would be shifting it over to a fiction setting. Maybe doing it as a video game. Every, you know, everything I think about is in terms of video games these days. Well, yeah. Um, but I would love to go back and explore there. The, I'm very glad we got the chance to wrap up with Ends of Empire, and I think that was a fitting conclusion to it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's an awful lot still out there um, that I wouldn't be too upset if I got the chance to uh, to go poking in those dark corners again.
1: <laughs> cool, wraith, excellent.
0: Okay, and since this was your first appearance on the show, we always ask all the writers and authors this one question, and that would be, if you could be a household appliance, which one would you be and why?
2: (laughs) Hmm. (laughs) Let's see. I've been accused of um, having a certain cheese grater-y personality. And... (laughs) but I'm not sure that technically qualifies as an appliance. So I'm going to go a little bit off the beaten track and say Stick Blender here.
1: Stick Blender, nice.
0: At least Eddie Webb decided he wanted to be an iPhone, so.
2: I'm not sure that counts as an appliance, really. <laughs> it doesn't. It does. No, doesn't. Know.
0: that's why I always bring it off.
2: <laughs> I have to remonstrate with him about that. Today. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, Richard, it's been a pleasure, and we thank you for coming on the show and talking about your works and your history and what you're currently doing. And uh, I think our listeners want to know to wrap things up. How could they follow you or contact you or get, a con- or maybe even stalk you if they wanted? To. No, I'm kidding about the last one. <laughs> your website, maybe you want to plug and your works.
2: Sure, absolutely. Um, my website is richarddansky.com. I'm rdansky on Twitter. Um, always, you know, there's an email address on the website. Always love hearing from folks. Um, I am a terrible correspondent, so I apologize if I don't write back immediately to anybody who writes to me. Um, but no, it, is, it has been a pleasure, and uh, thank you for having me on.
1: Well, thank you, Richard. We really enjoy you taking the, the, the time to talk to us, and it's been a really fascinating insight into your, into your work and the, the, well, where you've been and where you're going. So, yeah, really, uh,
2: thank you very much. It has been a pleasure.
1: Well,
0: as we're wrapping things up for number 20 of the Darker Days podcast, we'll be back uh, well, maybe next week, Mark, right, with another one action-packed show. I think we're going to be doing another Darkling and then two more episodes. Before you can blink, yes. I think we'll be ending out June with a whole bunch of interviews and segments and wonderful little yada yadas. And This has been the Darker Days podcast. I am Vince signing off for Mark. Good night, everybody.